Sean. Hey, Radcast is on. And welcome to the show, Mr. Jim Zumbo. Gentlemen, I am pleased to be here, and I use that term loosely when I say gentlemen. (laughs) (laughs) Al Winder. Just want to welcome you to the show. Thanks for uh, taking time out of your busy schedule to hang out with us on a podcast for a little bit. Hey, I'm looking forward to it. There's nothing makes me happier than a cold in Minnesota. If I can't be out fishing, I should be talking about fishing. (laughs) (laughs) Hailing from Wisconsin, Jenna Waller. Thanks so much for having me. It's Redcast. Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. Powered by Bow Spider. Brought to you by PK Lures and High Mountain Seasonings. And now, here's your hosts, Patrick Edwards and David Merrill. Today, I have a pretty special guest. I've been following this person for a while now. A great, just a great advocate for our sport, for the outdoors. She's a remarkable host, outdoors, respected TV show, hailing from Wisconsin, Jana Waller. Thank you so much for having me. I was really excited to meet you last weekend at the Rockman Games, and we started chatting all things hunting, like people do at those kind of events, and I'm excited to just a few days later hop on this podcast. Thanks for having me. Yep. No, that's the greatest way for me to get guests out here is when I'm out and about meeting people. I'm like, hey, by the way, I've got this podcast and it's actually starting to get a little bit of legs under it. And it's really exciting. You were the MC for the night along with your husband, who is John, right? Yep. Yep. John Bear, otherwise known as Mr. Auctioneer. Yep. Mr. Auctioneer. Yeah, he is. He's very good at what he does. I really enjoy having having him be the auctioneer and you and the MC. You guys played back and forth off each other, and it was a wonderful evening. You guys obviously work with the Mule, Mule Deer Foundation quite a bit, and we'll get into that and that relationship. But I want to start. Just take us all the way back to the beginning. Where did your love and passion for the outdoors start? If anyone's listened to any other podcast I've done, they're, they're going to, this is so repetitive, but it is the truth. My dad wanted, my dad had a daughter, my older sister, Paula, and like a lot of people, admittingly really wanted a boy, <laughs> but he only wanted two kids. I came along and thankfully, might I add, in the early 70s, where he didn't have a boy, but he turned me into one, so to speak. You can't even joke about that anymore, but I still do. My dad, I think, saw in me, even at at the age of three, I have a photo where I'm three years old. It's my earliest memory of all memories. I remember standing in the garage waiting for him to come home from a duck hunt because I wanted to smell the birds. Vividly remember that. And I loved how they felt and how they smelled and just all things waterfall because that's what he did at the time. And he just noticed in me at such a young age, this love of the outdoors that my sister really didn't have. It just wasn't innate in her. She was a bookworm and into ballerina stuff and maybe a classic girl versus me, the tomboy, if you will. And he would let me come along on his bird hunt, let me sit in the blind while he hunted geese on the Horicon Marsh in Wisconsin. And I always joked about when I was old enough, to walk the pheasant fields of Wisconsin without complaining a whole lot, he let me be his shadow. And that was the beginning of it, really, was just being his shadow. And when I was in sixth grade, we went out to South Dakota on a couple of different annual pheasant hunts, and I didn't even have a gun. I was the bird gutter. I was the official bird gutter. And my dad joked back in the day of, Jana doesn't feel dressed or gut anything. She autopsies everything. And, but that was my start of my fascination with all things animals. And 
then when I was in, I, I took hunter safety back in 1983, back in the day where I was the only girl in class. Actually, they may have been one other girl. But nowadays, you, it's the 50, which is so exciting to see. I, but my start into big game hunting and archery hunting was I sat in the trees with my dad throughout high school. My high school boyfriend was a bow hunter, never got anything, but a bow hunter. And I'd sit in the trees with them to just see the wildlife and really never envisioned myself being the hunter, but I loved so much just being surrounded by it and sitting in the trees and watching the woods come alive. And so I was a freshman in college. I went to Whitewater, Wisconsin, about 10 minutes away from my house. My dad had called me up and he said, I stuck my first buck, but he couldn't find it. And he said, you want to skip class tomorrow and come help me find it? Well, skipping class, heck yeah. Number two, getting to trounce around the woods with my dad. And long story short, I found that buck. It was in a corn, it wandered into a cornfield and I was on its track. My dad went another way and I could just tell the tracks were dragging in the dirt. And I was looking row to row and I finally saw that gleaming white belly back at me. And I'm like, dad, I found it. My dad came over and he's a pretty chill dude. And I've never seen him more excited. In the weeks and months to come after that, he literally described that moment to his buddies. He, he equated the excitement to the birth of his two daughters. So I knew that I wanted to know what that felt like and what that was like. And I'd already sat in the tree stands and stuff, but it was that coupled with meeting another gal bow hunter that year that I said, why am I not bow hunting myself? So I picked up a bow that next year, I think it was 19, I got a doe with my bow. And that was the beginning of 30 plus years of big game hunting. Wow, that was probably a really long answer. <laughs> no, that, that was a great answer. And, and part of it you touched on was, I know your dad was just there and you were just hanging out with him, right? This is yeah. a family affair. This is a tradition that gets passed down generation by generation. And we do see a lot of adult onset hunters and there's nothing wrong and they're welcome to come in the fold. Sure, come along. I'll show you what I know. But there's a much deeper connection with the outdoors, whether it's hunting, fishing, when you have memories of a young kid, three, four, five, catching your first trout on a bobber and a worm, right? And then when you're going along, like you just mentioned, pheasant hunting, you were the official gutter because you weren't old enough to carry a gun, have your license or shoot. But you have those memories, those core memories of, I got to go with dad and that was dad and mine's time. So you really have just highlighted, I know it was a long answer, but you've highlighted exactly why Patrick and I are so passionate about taking our families and promoting what we love, which is the outdoors, whether that's photography, mountain biking, trail hiking's lower on the list. I've done some 50 milers, but anymore, I like to put a weapon and a tag in my pocket, load up that same equipment, maybe a fishing pole and a backpack, do the 50 mile hike, catch a few fish along the way. But once I get to the pinnacle of the mountain, I want to sit up there and look around and go, oh, where's the sheep? Where's the elk? Where's the bear? How do they interact in this country? And it's just a way to be deeper connected with nature, much more so than hiking. Absolutely. I've always said that. It's about a connection. If you go back 14 years and look at the very first opening of Skullbound TV, I said that it's a connection to the planet. And when I say to the planet and the planet, the wildlife, other people, our food. When honestly, until COVID, I don't think most adults ever, and a lot of adults anyway, non-hunters, have never thought about a connection to their food. Now, in the last few years with the craziness of COVID and such, first time ever, we've gone into grocery stores with empty shelves. 
hunters weren't that concerned about it. And I don't know about you, but I've always had an extra freezer fully stocked, not too concerned. But non-hunters, there, and I definitely have seen a rise of adult onset hunters, and in part in the last few years because of COVID and getting outdoors was the only thing people could do, the organic movement. But all of that really is such a deeper connection to people, our food, and the great outdoors, like you said. 100%. Farmers and ranchers have known that forever. Patrick likes to raise and slaughter his own pigs. I've done it a few times. We butchered a beef one year, but Jan and I have three freezers, and there's protein in there. It's usually ungulate, most most likely wapiti, but sometimes there's some mountain goat or some black bear or a mountain lion or something, doll sheep. Occasionally, I think it's all gone. I wish we could get some more. Well, I got a question for you. Okay. You're known for skull art. Where did that come from? Where did your passion come from? And how did you combine that? That's the name of the TV show, right? Skullbound, right? Yep. It actually goes back to accrediting my dad. He, this goes back, oh, so the show goes back almost 14 years, but my skull art goes back about 20 years. And my dad was in New Mexico on a trip, saw a Native American style painted ram skull. And he said, why don't you start doing these with some of your skulls? Because I had skulls from Hunt that were European mounted skulls I have found in the, this was back living in Wisconsin, in the Wisco woods, skulls that I've always been a skull freak. If I go to a yard sale and there's a cool steer skull or a buffalo skull, I, I would buy it no matter what. So I always had a big skull collection. And he said, why don't you start doing this with some of your skulls? So I did, I started painting them. And at the time I actually worked for Edward Jones Investments. That was my previous life before this life I live in now. I actually, some of my friends saw that were either on my wall at my house or in the office and hey could you do that for my husband or boyfriend or those are really cool and one thing led to another and then I started to donate them to my dad's Ducks Unlimited banquets, Pheasants Forever, those kind of things and it was super fun to donate my skull, see what it would go for, raise money for conservation which I was really passionate about even way before moving out west. So that was the birth of my skull art. It's no surprise my ex and I started Skullbone TV and when we were trying to figure out, number one, what kind of show we wanted to do, he did previous outdoor hunting shows, wanted to start a new one. We really wanted it to be solo female hosted because there weren't any at the time on the network. So we we're trying to figure out what to call it. And we decided to call it Skullbound because of my skull art and that we were bound to make a difference, both in conservation and in, I really wanted to show people through the hunting show that we hunters are the greatest animal lovers on the planet. That was my goal. Because even growing up in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and onward, there's always been that challenge when you meet someone who has no clue what hunting is, and they think we're a bunch of hillbillies with a wad of tobacco in our lips shooting from the truck. Unfortunately, that's how mainstream media has often portrayed us. And so it was my goal when we started Skullbound to show that we're the greatest conservationists in this planet and that we're huge animal lovers. Once again, a really long answer, sorry about that. But there's a dichotomy in there and people will say, how can you be an animal lover and take an animal's life? And we've covered it on the podcast, you've covered it, and people know, and I'll summarize it in, we put our money where our mouth is, A, but B, if you go through and look at the biology of what we do, we're taking one to save the 99, and that's all it is. We're removing one species from, one specimen of that species from the population so that the others can have a healthier environment. And if you're not open to looking at that from a scientific data-driven mindset, we can't have a conversation. That's just a fact. 
Exactly. John Bear said it the best, my husband. He said, we have wildlife because we hunt wildlife. And that's true. And it really is. And it can be, you're right, hard for people. I've been sitting on an airplane next to people. My favorite conversation I've ever had with an anti was this African-American professor from McGill University. And we sat together and I sat down and he, I, he said, first thing out of both was, hello. And then he said, so what do you do? And I <laughs> said, actually, I host a hunting show. And his first thing out of his mouth was, you're not one of those NRA freaks, are you? And I said, as a matter of fact, I kind of am. As a matter of fact. We had a two and a half hour conversation. He was, he grew up in inner city Chicago and we had an amazing conversation that was open-minded. He was a vegan, anti-hunting, anti-gunner. And we had a conversation and he literally wrote me an email the next day. We exchanged our cards and he said, you have my mind spinning. This is the first time I have ever spoken with anyone, especially a woman who loves guns, loves hunting, and doesn't look at both of those as being bad. And obviously, this, he's a professor at McGill, very intelligent man. And it was a beautiful conversation. I do have to say, it's the only beautiful conversation I've ever had with an anti, but it really meant something to me. And it reminds me all the time that if we can have open, respectful conversations, because I was super respectful to his viewpoints as well, that then we could maybe at least better understand one another. And one thing is for sure is that he did not know that connection between the fact that hunters pay for the majority of wildlife management in this country. We went deep in those two and a half hours, but it was a beautiful thing. And it's part of the reason I started Scobo. That's amazing. That's exactly what everybody who is involved in the outdoors, whether you're just a hobby duck hunter who goes one weekend a year, right? Or you're somebody like you and I who have TV shows, companies, and lifestyles completely built around it. We are taking part and we are one little small piece. And we need to remember that there's two places on the globe that wildlife numbers have increased in the 21st century. It's North America and South Africa. And South Africa adopted a similar um, wildlife model to the North American conservation model. Hunters pay to harvest animals. Those dollars go to pay for habitat and to pay for conservation officers to protect and biologists to set limits. That's just, and the model works. We've proven it works. And if you want to argue that it doesn't, go look at mule deer, antelope, whitetail, bison, the list goes on. Turkey, they were almost all extinct, all of them. And they're all been brought back from the edge to record numbers in some of those species cases. Exactly. It's a, it's definitely a missed message, but I think slowly but surely through social media and open dialogue like that, I think people are understanding. Unfortunately, the antis have hundreds of millions of dollars behind their cause as well. But anytime I've had a conversation with a non-hunter, I'm not saying anti, there's definitely different categories, a non-hunter and explain to them the, the, the North American conservation model and why I hunt and why I choose to mount my animals and why I eat organic fresh meat that I know where it comes from, all those kind of things. Th- those one-on-one conversations can be really powerful. I've got a whole list of questions, but I, I really, this one, I have a bunch of bear skulls, a bunch of cougar skulls. I got a bunch of mounts around the house. 
but I want to hear from your perspective. Take one of the most memorable hunts you can come up with, whether it be a bear hunt, an elk hunt, and you can tell us what it is here in a moment, but you bring that trophy home, you clean that skull, and you put it in your house. What what does that skull mean to you? Why is it in your house? Why is it even there? It's the exact equivalent to someone having a photo album of their family. Why do we take so many baby pictures of, of our kids when they're little? Why do we document graduations and weddings and look back years later at those photos and they create that feeling of, oh, remember that? Or moments in time where we were happy or thriving or our family was. And it's the exact equivalent to that. My house is filled with tangible memories. Every single hide, piece of art, skull, even sheds, I have sheds galore. I I remember most of those, not as much as the hunts, but every mount for example, it's just a tangible memory for me to share with other people. Like I, just right before the podcast, my father-in-law came by with John's nephew, Dallin. And Dallin, the first time he's been in our new house and he looked around and they just were in and out super short visit on the way to the doctor. And I said, you got to come back. I want to tell you the story of every month in this house. And he was like, what's that? And he just had all these questions. But there, to answer, try to boil down my answer, they're tangible memories that I relive every time I look at them and share that story. What is one of your earliest tangible memories, whether it be hunting, fishing, big game, small game? What, what is one that just, one of the, and it doesn't have to be the earliest one. What is a special memory, a special trip that really sticks out in your mind? The two I already mentioned that was finding my dad's Wisconsin buck, that first buck he ever arrowed, and I was like 18. And then literally three years old, I've got a photo where I'm sitting, I've got my probably long underwear boots and a jacket on in the garage, and I'm touching one of my dad's ducks. And I think I'm three, maybe four. Those two really, I I talk about and I think about a lot. One of my favorite kind of newer stories really was, again, my dad. And And all the hunts I've ever been on, they're all special in their own way, whether it was super challenging or like the moose on the wall behind me. That was an Alaska sort of DIY hunt that was amazing with Ben and Taylor Woolard. They all have different components to them that mean something so much to them. But for me, it was like four years ago, I had gone through a big change in my life. My ex and I split and I was doing skullbound with him for 10 years. And I didn't know what that looked like. I didn't know what my future looked like. I didn't know if I wanted to have a camera guy, a strange camera guy following me around all the time, go, you think about it, I'm backpacking or doing backcountry hunts and sleeping in a tent. And I just didn't know if I was going to move forward with Skullbound and what that looked like. I didn't know we lived together in a home in Montana. I didn't know. So my life was going to be uprooted. I didn't know what that looked like. It, it was an emotional, but amazing time for me. I, I, as woman going through midlife at the same time of trying to figure things out, I decided I was going to move on with Skullbone. All my partners, after reaching out to them, were like, heck yeah, we're, I've basically had the same partners I've had since day one. Just a couple of different ones have changed, but I'm just really blessed in that category. So did some digging, called up my buddy Heath. Hey, Heath, what do you think about, and he was a guy who lived close to me, friends with him and his wife. You want to be a cameraman? Would you like to be my full-time editor? Absolutely. So that was all good. But still, emotionally, like trying to move forward from a lot of pain. And I went to my dad. My dad had called me and said, I sold the cabin. And for me, it was heartbreaking. Because my dad's cabin in Wisconsin, it 
20 years of incredible memories, awesome deer hunts. And my dad's kind of old school. He's hilarious, but he's never owned a trail camera. Maybe he has, but not, he might put it in the backyard above the bird feeder. Like we never had food plots. This was old school Wisconsin hunting. My dad's dad, my grandpa's was no longer, I've never got to hunt with him. But my dad was telling me the story on this particular hunt I'm going to share that he, we were laughing so hard because I remember, he goes, I remember my dad saying, nothing ruins a Wisconsin deer camp, like someone getting a deer down. <laughs> so that's my dad's mentality, even though when he was in his 60s, like 20 years ago, we were hardcore archery hunters together. Now my dad's in his 80s, doesn't hunt as much, but long story short, was going through this challenging time in my life. I went to, my dad said I sold the cabin, but we're going to have one last weekend of rifle gun hunt. And I was so emotional about saying goodbye to the cabin. 20 years I'd had up there, amazing memories, the Wisconsin fish fries, everybody standing around at their brandy Manhattans or brandy old fashions. And it was, it's just memories again, that connection, like you talked about. And so I decided I was going to go sit in my rifle stand that I hadn't rifle hunted that, but maybe one time in the last decade, I really, even at the start of Skullbomb, didn't hunt Wisconsin a whole lot, just because I'm so crazy busy all fall and living in Montana, hunting elk and everything else and antelope and deer. It was tough to get back. But so I went back, I said, okay, I last minute planned to go back and hunt just Saturday, Sunday with my dad and the family. Friday night before the hunt, I walked through the woods to go check my stand. Thank God I did because it was warped shut. I could, it was a box blind that you walk up the ladder stand into this box blind. All the windows are broken out, the roof's caving in, the door was warped shut. I had to basically football drill my way through the door. Not a good thing to do opening morning. So anyway, it was just nostalgic. I literally Friday afternoon sat in that box wine for an hour and just thought of all the amazing memories that I'm going to start that I had for two decades with my dad out there. And this is about an hour and a half where I live from where I lived in Wisconsin. And every single archery season, I was running up there bow hunting by myself all the time. Sometimes with my dad, sometimes not. I would skip work Wednesdays, drive up, sit Wednesday nights, drive home by myself. It was just my thing. And Saturday morning comes. I knew it was my Saturday and Sunday were my last two days that I would ever be on this property. And I'm just feeling so nostalgic. There's frost all over everything. It's absolutely beautiful. This is the week before Thanksgiving and Wisconsin's gun season is only nine days. And I only had two days and I'm just being super nostalgic. And I see a deer. And mind you, the second I sat down there Friday, I'm like, this is so overgrown. I'm never going to see anything. No one had sat in that stand for years. And like, no, I'm not going to see anything, but I'm just going to soak it all in. Long story short, I see a buck. He runs off in the woods about 100 yards. And I'm like, that's cool. I saw a buck opening morning. That's good luck. And it wasn't probably 10 minutes later, I hear of the leaves below my stand. And I lean out the window and look. And there is a buck that in your mind's eye, I just, usually I go shooter, no shooter. I make the decision. And then I'm not going to focus in on his rack because I'm going to freak myself out. He literally brushes by the ladder of the stand. He's so close. I got my, I think I had my 26 nozzler at the time suppressed. This thing is huge. I can't even get the barrel low enough to shoot this buck. I get up off my chair. I move to the back window. He's out about 35 yards now. I grunt, stop him, shoot. He kicks, runs off. And all of this, by the way, I film little bits on my cell phone. It's all on highlights in my Instagram story. But I just knew I shot a great buck. I didn't know what I shot. Now, mind you, I've killed a bunch of 130, 140s up there over the years. That's, those are really nice bucks on my dad's place. Everything is relative. 
But 130s, 140s is a nice archery buck up there. Fits Brown, it's down to the motto of my dad's work. I got up to this buck and long story short, it's a 16 pointer, 170 inch whitetail. And he's just beautiful. And I literally just couldn't believe it. I've never seen that buck or any buck like it. No one, nothing is ever weird at my dad's. And he was definitely non-typical. He had a second inline beam. He's right on the wall, right back there. But I got up to it and, and it it's so much more than just, woohoo, I got a big buck. To me in my life at the time, it was almost as if God was tapping me on the shoulder and going, you got this. It's okay. But everything's good. This is all good. And it's funny. I was telling the story months later at SHOT Show to my friend, Brandon Lilly. And he was like, tell me about that buck. So I told him the whole story and how emotional I was that weekend. This, I'm saying goodbye to my dad's cabin. And I was given this beautiful gift of this buck. And it's almost like, a, you've got this and goodbye. And I said, I sat there with this buck and I set up my camera on a and I pushed record on video, just trying to get a screen grab of how nice he looked. And I literally stopped for a minute. And it was almost as if the woods were just glowing gold. It was a spiritual moment. I know it sounds crazy, but it was. And Brandon, without skipping a beat, said, didn't you ever think maybe you were the one making those woods glow? That was such a beautiful thing to say. And to me, and of all my memory, and then I got to text my dad. You are not going to believe this. When I texted him and said I got a 16-pointer down, he was like, sure you did. We always joke with each other, and I'm sure he was thinking I was pulling his leg. But when I drug, I'd field dressed him, drug him to the road, walked back to the cabin. And there was, I think, I don't know, eight or ten of us at the cabin, friends of my dad. When my dad saw that buck, like, he was so excited for me and just hugged all around. And it was so special to share my last weekend at the cabin with my dad. He was there watching him spin this buck in his hands and just being so excited that someone got a nice buck finally and that we could say goodbye like that. It was it was a really beautiful thing that to if there happens to be a non-hunter listening to this, they're going to think I'm crazy, but I would bet most hunters out there can relate. Now, what a fitting end to a legacy, right? You got the emotions of, I got to say bye to the childhood cabin where I where you started hunting, where Skullbound really did start, right? You're there, you're I mean, saying goodbye. Yeah, it wasn't a childhood cabin because I bet my dad got it when I was, I'm old, maybe my late 20s. I think he got it when I was in my late 20s. But that was that's adulthood in my life anyway. Like you segment out in your college days, you're still a child. Your 20s, you don't know who you are yet. 30s, oh, you can figure out who you are and this is great. And then 40s were amazing, and I'm in my 50s, and I love it. I wouldn't go back in time for anything. I've never been more comfortable in my own skin. I've never loved life more than I love it right now. But I section out like that life when I think back and I try to think when hunts were and moments and stuff. But, yeah, this was my adulthood cabin where I had so many amazing memories with my dad, and it was really hard to say goodbye to it. It's hard to watch your parents get older, too. And to have my dad not care as much about hunting as he used to. And it just is what it is. But it was a beautiful goodbye to that period of my life. Now, we all get to go through that. And I I did a doll sheep film with my dad. And all the listeners know about it. It's been three years ago, four years ago now. Well, we went and did a film this last year on Kodiak for goats. And it's getting ready to launch here in a month or so. I've been working on it really hard. But just seeing the transition from my dad, and, and I'm, I'm going to drop a hint here. Dad, on the film, this latest one, he says, this is his last month, mountain hunt. He's done. He's hanging it up. And that's a, some of the same emotion you're bringing up is 
I can remember being mm, seven, eight, following my dad with my six-year-old little brother behind me, telling him to turn around saying, be quiet. You're making too much noise. We're not going to get anything because I really wanted to get something. And I was just, I was just the skinner, right? I was just the bird feather plucker. And I can remember that trip. We never got anything. For two or three years, I would go for a weekend. I think it was just my mom said, take those boys and get out of this house and don't come back. But from a young age, wanted to harvest a deer, right? That's, I just, we got to get one. We got to get one. I watched Disney Bambi and I just wanted to shoot Bambi's dad, even as a little kid. They might have put that movie out to create more people who are against hunting, but it, I still am chasing Bambi's dad. Haven't found him yet. <laughs> So being an advocate for wildlife, how do you encourage your viewers to become stewards of wildlife? I really encourage people to get involved in a local chapter of theirs. I think that's one of the easiest ways to get involved. I belong. So John and I were adding up the other night. We belong to 11 different conservation groups. I I said 11 on a previous podcast. And then I'm like, God, I think I exaggerated that. Nope. We're at 11 and they, I know I'm forgetting one. We might be at 12. Different conservation groups that we both belong to. Now, some I'm really active involved in and others I pay the 30 bucks a year and I'm just a member. But I think it's really important for people to get involved on a local level, whether you're into Mule Deer Foundation or you love turkey hunting. So you join the National Wild Turkey Federation or Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation or the Sportsman for Fish and Wildlife. I'm even a member of the American Bear Foundation. There's so many out there. Join them. And most of those, especially the bigger ones, have local chapters near you to get involved. Go to one of their dinners. Oh, sometimes in the summer, they've got picnic rallies. Go to one of their events, become a member, sign up for the email list, and and join in on the volunteering. There's out here at West, I, lo- I just moved from Montana to Utah, but they're constantly putting in water guzzlers, taking down fence, planting sage, having fundraisers to raise money because this mountainside needs to be drug, meaning all the scrub brush, the oak brush needs to be pulled because it kills everything alone. All habitat projects like that. There's so many fun ways to get involved, but if you can join one of your local groups, it's an easy in. Otherwise, it it can be intimidating. Like, where do you start? I don't know anybody. But I would definitely recommend people join a local conservation group and then join them all on social media and follow them along. And they certainly help me in knowing what's going on with all the different chapters. They help me talk the talk. I walk the walk all the time. I'm hunting nonstop. But how do we talk the talk? How do we tell people what we're all about? Like the video that was played at the Rockman Games last weekend, that was the 35th anniversary Mule Deer Foundation video. That was created by my business partner, Heath. He does such an amazing job. And we, the conservation groups have to tell their stories more and better because they're good at raising money. They're good at protecting wildlife and habitat. They're not always good at telling their story. People don't know what those foundations do or organizations do but we need to tell those stories and we need to share those stories on social media and we need to get involved. hundred percent. If you need to take a seat at the table and, and be involved and have a voice in the conversation and help steer the outcome of this, don't just sit down and complain. And you're right that there's even more organizations than you mentioned. You got Elk Foundation, you got Trout Unlimited, you got Pheasants Forever. I mean, it continues on and on. So join one. Yeah. You're right. I do have a question. You've got 11 nonprofits you help assist or are on some level. You've got the TV show. You're emceeing, helping, right, doing all this. How do you balance all these different 
avenues in life, including all these big hunts? Because that's as just that's a question as a business owner. How do you balance all that? It's hard. It can be really hard. I definitely don't have a work schedule. I work evenings, weekends, whenever it comes up. And nowadays, I still have the TV show, but yet a lot of how I work with my partners is social media content. So I'm taking the evenings to produce some videos to talk about the products that I use. I try to do it very organically, like what am I using right now or how has this helped me? But it is hard to balance that time, especially with travel. Travel is so hard because I don't know if you're like me, but when I travel, I need recoup time. Even when I'm like, I go, I go to a lot of hunts, but then I also do a ton of banquets and a ton of expos and hunting shows across the country. And on either side of that travel for a day, and then you're gone two or three days, especially at a show, sometimes longer, sometimes a week. And a hunt, you're gone seven to 10 days. And then you get home and real life catches you, right? You've got bills to pay. You've got laundry to do. You've got a house to clean. You've got to see family and friends who want to be a part of your life. And they're so important. They should be number one. And so you got to make time for them. And it is hard. The best way that I have learned to balance all that, like you said, is to just literally go with my intuition and my gut. I've learned to say no to a lot of things that maybe it would have been really good for me to go to this expo for three days. And I would have gotten, I would have been able to go for free, put on a seminar, make a little money. But at the same time, I also, maybe I haven't been home in a long time. And I am a homebody. When I'm not hunting or fishing, I love to be home. I don't go out. I don't do a whole lot. I don't even like to go to the movies. Like I like to be in on my car. I like to stay home. And so it's really just, I feel like going with my intuition on things. And that can be even from when do I travel? What partners do I want to work with? When I went through the split four years ago, I literally got rid of any partner that if I couldn't look at the phone and see their caller ID and be excited they were calling me, I didn't want to work with them anymore. If they, I got rid of any emotional drain. I don't care what the cost of the money they were furthering me with. My, my girlfriend, Julie, said it the best. You need to work with people who celebrate you, not tolerate you. And I had some partners that I felt just tolerated with. And so I got rid of those. And it's amazing when you do that, um, whether it's people in your life, partners in your life, business partners in your life, and you literally work with people who you love and want to see just soar to the top of that mountain. And they want to see you soar. That's who you work with. And it's amazing how much more time you have, more energy you have for positivity and positive people and things. And so really, I've just learned to go by my intuition. I also have an amazing husband. John is so good. at. I'm going to be gone here next week for a boat fishing trip out in Maryland. I'm going to go out with AMS and stick some stingrays. And he's just awesome. He's, oh my gosh, have fun. I'll pick you up. I'll drop you up. He's just e- easy. So definitely having a really strong partner makes balance all the easier. Isn't it amazing when we support each other and work with each other and help each other, how high we can lift each other up? It's just getting to just a text and share. And I have industry contacts that I'm getting ready to go on a moose hunt in Alaska with my dad. Impromptu, I just bought a ticket and our family cabin is in Alaska, which is very fortunate for me because that's where I like to be. We're going to go on an early season archery moose trip. Probably not going to get a moose. It's just, and I'm not willing to sacrifice premium elk hunt time to go chase a moose because it's a moose. I'll kill one eventually. I'm, I'm not too worried about it, but I want to go spend seven days with my dad doing something. Yeah. And you yeah. mentioned that's 
it's cool that you what you said about you want to work with people who promote you, not just tolerate you, who celebrate people you. Who celebrate you, not tolerate you. Yeah, it makes such a difference. So what is the key message you hope viewers take away from Skullbound TV? Oh, probably like we talked about before. I want people to feel inspired, but also that, like I, for when I say this, obviously most of the people who are watching my show are hunters or wannabe, but they're hunters. So this is going to sound a little weird, but I wanted to remember that we're animal lovers. To me, I created Skullbound and I still have that exact intention. Um, and I think that's so important in life. The word intention is so powerful. What is your intention? And I actually got that through reading a book um, years back called Seed of the Soul by Gary Zukoff. He was actually this badass green braid dude who went, but it's an amazing book. And there's parts of it that I pick and choose from that I think about all the time. And one is intention. What is your intention? What behind your decisions, behind your conversations, behind what you do? And if there is good energy behind that intention, if there is wholesome, good energy, positive thinking, good attitudes behind your intention, then things will go well. And I've lived my life like that the last 20 years, and it's worked out really well. And it doesn't mean that trials and tribulations don't happen. Of course they do. That's like, but then how do you look at them and how do you turn them around and how do you use them for your benefit? And I really want people to watch. So that I have Skullbound TV, which is my fast channel on Carbon TV. And it's like Nat Geo history. You turn it on, it's whatever's playing is on. And it's got commercials that run through it that right now I don't have any control of the commercials. You might happen to see a commercial for your George Foreman grill about 20,000 times in a day. But it is my fast channel that is so cool because it's all, besides my current season of Skullbound Chronicles, it's everything I've ever filmed on a rotating list. You may be sitting there watching it and it's my first bear I ever killed on season one. And then the next episode could be catching a 12-foot sturgeon in the Oregon River. You never know what you're going to see, but it's all previous 13 years. Nine years of Skullbound TV that was on the Sportsman's channel. And then I've been now, I'm in my fifth season on Carbon TV. But Skullbound TV is my fast channel on Carbon. And then I also have Skullbound Chronicles, which is my show on Carbon. But it is uh, like a YouTube channel. You can pick and choose and say, I want to watch that episode. Or I last year I did an all-veteran season. I did 13 of my favorite veteran hunts that I've ever done all in one season. I recommend people start out with that. Their stories are amazing. You get to watch an awesome hunt, but you also get to feel so patriotic. And I I have guys all the time messaging me saying, I'm embarrassed to say this, you brought me to tears. That's what that veteran season is for. I want people to watch Skullbound and feel like, yes, we're doing the right thing. We're animal lovers. We're conservationists. And then I want them to watch season four of Skullbound Chronicles and be like, I freaking love this country. This is so amazing. That's what I want to take away. You know, you and I got to chat quite a bit the other weekend and it was a good time and the energy was good. The vibe was good, right? I think you could tell the holistic intentions about inviting you on the podcast, right? Was just wanted to let you spread your message and story further. The, the question behind that is of those veterans you've taken, I'm already pretty sure, but how many have you got to stay in contact that after that hunt, it's not, some people think that it's just, oh, I took this person on a hunt, used their story to, to build myself up. And I'm pretty sure how many of those have you stayed in contact with? Um, 
there's one that is he's quiet and he doesn't really like to talk or text. He's not real. He's a homebody. But out of the there was 13 favorite episodes that I put on that season, but there's probably 15, 16 hunts all together. But every single one of them I'm in some form or contact with. They're friends of mine. They're buddies. They're amazing human beings. And Men the thing- and women. I always say the guys, but because I do a lot of combat, veteran, obviously women, they are in combat in ways. In fact, one of the episodes on that veteran season is Shelby Hatch. She was a medic nurse. And so she saw the worst of the worst. She actually had to catalog body bags. I can't imagine somebody having to do that. And that's obviously draining on your soul. So we t- I took her on her very first antelope hunt and we've got Dee Servi, who's my girl who was in the Air Force and she was also a sheriff's office. She worked for the sheriff's office for years and years. I took her bear hunting. But almost all the guys, I consider them good friends and we stay in good contact with. But once you share, whether it's a first hunt, a hundredth hunt, once you share an adventure like that, it's, these people become family. It's, you know, you can always look back on the momentum. Remember when we went and did that? No. And you get to see them around the country at events and follow up and check in. And I'm sure they're sending you subsequent trophy photos and adventures. And Exactly. Communicating sometimes through social media and tagging each other, but texts on the phone calls, let's meet at Expo. Hey, are you going to be at NWTF? All that. Yeah. Uh, on a regular basis. And I mean it when I, I said in, in one of my shows, I was doing a fine interview for it and I'm recapping this incredible last 14 years of my life and, and these amazing veterans that have literally changed my life and my perspective on things that they have been highlights of my life. And where I, if it weren't for Spellbound, I'm not sure that I would have had the opportunities that I had to sit around a campfire, to sit on the mountainside while it's the lull of the afternoon, freezing your butt off, waiting for elk, or spending that kind of quality time. And then during their hunt, we're also talking about their what they went through in the military and what it was like coming back and trying to acclimate back into college life or family life or losing the brotherhood that they had, the camaraderie, the schedule. Even just the schedule. When they're in the military, they they're nowhere to go, what to do. They're on a routine. And they come back and they sometimes have lost that brotherhood and that connection. And hunting is one vehicle that can really bring them back together. That's why I love Witches for Warriors. They're not the only group I work with, but they're a big part of my life that I've done a lot of hunts with in the last decade. And Witches for Warriors, the guys stay connected through Wishes. And then they'll do other events like whitewater river rafting, golf events. They just had a big clay shoot to where they could all go compete with one another, bond with each other, and strengthen their brotherhood now that they're home. I think the we've had Zumbo on here, but the one that comes to mind is Fred Bear says, immerse yourself in the outdoors. It will cleanse the soul. And whether you, whatever you're struggling with, whatever you're going through, Zumbo said it best, they take some veteran hunters and these guys will open up and talk about things that they're not going to sit down and talk to a counselor about in a closed off mental health society scenario, right? But sitting around a campfire going, I've been struggling with this or I'm working with this or what do you guys think about that? Exactly. Tom Spooner said it best to me. Tom Spooner founded, he's one of the founders behind Mission 22 which is the nationwide campaign about suicide and that on average 22 veterans a day commit suicide. So mission 22, but he founded the very first facility called Warrior's Heart 
of its kind in Texas. And it's a 30 day, I believe, inpatient therapy for drugs, alcohol, depression, and you have to be a veteran or a first responder to go to Warrior's Heart. And now there are other Warrior's Heart facilities, but he founded that in Texas. I was talking to Tom Spooner at Chacho one year, and he explained it better than anyone I'd ever heard. He boiled it down into a 60-second conversation, and he said, think about it like this. These guys, and it's also women, but these guys come home from the war, and they are burdened. They're burdened with maybe they lost their friend who died in their arms. Maybe they didn't get injured at all, but they have survivor's guilt. Maybe they lost a limb. Maybe they're going, going through terrible times overseas. They come home, they've got these burdens. And he said, and those burdens do not belong to that individual because that cup of, it's like he explained it as if it were a cup. And if those warriors could just learn to talk about it and to share their stories, and every time they tell their story, they pour out just a little bit of burden and a little bit of burden and a little bit of burden because that burden belongs to every single one of us God-loving American patriots. That's our burden to share with them. And every time they can do that, then that cup of burden gets a little bit smaller and maybe now it's only half a cup and that they can deal with. A beautiful way to describe what we're talking about. Yep, a burden shared is a burden halved, right? So... Speaking of some of that, when people are sharing, and we spoke about social media a little bit, can you advise new aspiring young people, women, men who are, you know, coming up and want to be in conservation in the limelight, they want to be a, a social media star, what are some do's and don'ts on social media pertaining to hunting and conservation? The best advice I ever received was actually I was talking to my girlfriend, Melissa Bachman, She's a hardcore hunter. She's awesome. She's on the Sportsman's channel, has been for years. She actually got her Facebook page shut down because she was getting all these really ugly comments, death threats, and she was reporting them. Facebook came back, and we all know social media is not gun-friendly, hunter-friendly. They're not country music-friendly. They're not our kind of people. No. <laughs> she came back and said, thank you for all the messages. We see that you're getting harassed and the messages that are coming at you. We're shutting down your page because we cannot protect you. And she had to start all over from scratch. The best advice she ever gave me, and I've passed this along, is if you are receiving ugly comments, even threats, erase their comment and block and ban that person. That's it. I had to learn the hard way because I'm a right fighter. I'm going to go on there and I'm going to, are you crazy? Are you kidding me? Of course, mountain lions aren't in danger and get it. Nope. I have learned that if they're name calling, if they're being rude, if they're threatening, erase their comment, go into their account, block them and ban them. That's it. And the more you do that, and I have thousands on my ban list over the years, the more you do that, the less you'll see. Because a lot, because they got big mouths, but they're not that big. And the more you ban and block them, yeah, they'll start other accounts and they'll trickle in. you got to have thick skin, first of all. And I think that people know that nowadays, though. When you're on social media, you could put out there, I just cured cancer and you're going to get some Yahoo. Thanks a lot. I just lost my job at the pharmaceutical company, thanks to you. You're always going to get a negative Nelly in every <laughs> post. I, I, got it, I got it just this week. So I got a brand new pistol and I do a lot of pistol hunting after I hurt my shoulder. I'm pulling a bow back became hard five years ago and I still bow hunt once in a while, but I do a ton of pistol hunting and I ordered a brand new BFR 3030 pistol and I did a little video of it and I got Yahoo's in there and she can't even 
there's no way she'll be able to fire that gun. No way. Those to me are not banning category. I just, okay, hold my beer and watch this, whatever. But if they are name calling, being rude, B word, B word, not cute and beautiful. If they're threatening you in any way, shape or form, erase their comments, block them and ban them. And then moving forward, be respectful. If someone is coming on your page and being rude, I don't call people names back. Like that guy, I said, I did say, hold my beer and watch this. And then there was another one under there where I said, in fact, I've killed three bears, one mountain lion, a heavily not hog and a turkey with a Desert Eagle 429. I think I can handle the 33. And he messaged back and said, oops, my bad. Didn't know who I was talking to. So kill him with kindness, be a little sarcastic, be a little funny, but always be respectful. Remember it's out there for the world to see. And even if it gets erased, a lot of times people will screen grab it. So be respectful. Remember that you're always on social media is out there for the world to see. Get thick skin. But if you're new to hunting and new to maybe putting your hunting pictures out there, make sure those pictures are respectful. Try to think, keep, clean up the blood and also talk about why you're grinning. Why are you so happy? How many days did it take? What are you going to do with the meat? What are you going to do with the bear hide? What are you going to, whatever it is, talk about it and explain. Remember that a lot of people don't truly don't know. And they've only, they're only spouting off maybe what they've heard other people say. They don't really know. And if you do that and they still come back and now they're being rude or not, then it's the easy time to erase their comments and ban them. No, you're spot on. I learned way back in the beginning. A, just don't read the comments, right? Just post what, wow. what, what you're posting is respectful, good, great representation. I just post and walk away. But we did post a, a short nine second video clip of a how to use our product and we've got a full camera team out there lights audio sound right and there's people on there just picking it apart and I, i've been reading through and just ignoring and these guys are like oh where's this guy going hunting without any arrows in his quiver i'm like we took the quiver off so you could see the product better it wasn't hiding behind arrows i don't have a release on because i don't have any arrows because we're not hunting it's middle of june and we're out here filming a commercial it's not even season right i didn't even yeah. i didn't even talk to anybody but somebody did tear down my old z7 mag bow and it's a matthews bow that's 15 years old now I've gone around the continents twice, Africa, Alaska, U.S., harvested a dozen or so trophy big game animals with that bow. And all I did is I got on there and I said, that Z7 mag sure has a pile of animals behind it. So you can, and I just thought, you can pick on my old bow that's in the commercial, but not only are they tearing me apart for the equipment that's in there, and why was I using my old bow, not my brand new carbon one from Bowtech? Because I don't want to be pretentious and and. Uh, promote the idea that you have to only have a brand new bow to be successful in the woods, right? That's, yeah, that's half the reason I don't even work with an archery company anymore. I want to shoot what I want to shoot. I don't want to shoot a brand new bow every year. I want to shoot what I want to shoot. I've been shooting over 30 years. I've got a lot of these animals that are archery. I just, it's not even worth it to me. It's funny that you say that because there's a Yahoo in every bunch. I always say that. And I saw David Goggins, I don't know if it was Rogan's podcast or what, and he said a great quote and he said, no one, no hater is ever going to comment a rude comment who's doing better than you are. Hey, there you go. So, so true. So true. I, mean, I cannot imagine going onto someone's post and being rude and being like, what is that? Or, oh, that cute shot, that cute little deer. I just can't, <laughs> I can't even imagine having the attitude of going onto people's posts and being negative. I just don't get it. And usually you have to remember those kind of 
BS comments come from haters who are probably stuck in a miserable job. It's Maybe a, it's a defensive gone. mechanism. If I tear yeah. somebody else down who's doing better than me, I get to feel better. Yep, that's 100%. Yep. So back on track, what is your favorite species to hunt? And this is a twofold question, right? The question right. following this one is, what is your favorite meat to procure and how do you cook that? So first of all, what would be your favorite thing to hunt? Why, how, where, when, and how are we cooking it? And that's such a hard question because I love elk hunting. I, I grew up whitetail hunting in Wisconsin. So it is a really hard to say. A lot of people ask me the question, if you can only hunt one thing, it's hard. I would have to say though, bears, because I hunt bear more than any other big game species because I get a spring season and I get a fall season. Pigs are over the counter in Montana. They're over the counter in Idaho, Utah, unfortunately not over the counter, but I'm, I still have tons of friends in Montana and my business partner, Heath, he lives in Montana. He is also my baiting partner. So Heath and I have for 10 years have run baits in Idaho together. I hunt bears. Sometimes I've taken four bears in one year because I'm in Montana, Idaho, or I'm going up into Alberta and then I'm going to Alaska. Next year I have Idaho, Montana, Prince of Wales already, those pigs are out. So I know for sure I'll three bear hunts next year. I'd have to say my favorite is bear. Now I love bear also because I, I truly believe it's the most diverse big game species. I've hunted bears with Bonstock, Montana, most of my bears. I bait my own bears in Idaho. And this year people say, oh, you bait them. They just come in and I didn't even knock my tape. Now I could have multiple times, but I was waiting on Fatty to come in, who would only come in if I wasn't sitting there or with dark out. And he never came back. In fact, we're going to do a full episode on just that. We got amazing great bear footage, but just didn't see the bear of my dreams. Now, my fa- a bear meat is also so fun to talk about because it is so misunderstood. People think because bears are so fat and greasy when you take care of them that they're gross and smelly and the meat's bad. Bear meat is absolutely delicious. In fact, bear meat is useful and delicious. They're fat. You can render. You can cook with it. You can make lotion, lip balm. There's you, so many things you can do with bear fat. In fact, it used to be, I was listening to a podcast with Clay, Bear Grease podcast. It used to be currency. Bear fat used to be back a hundred years ago, currency that they would trade and barter with because it was so valuable. Now, recipes, this is going to be, it's going to sound like I'm faking out, but I'm just being truthful. I do not like to cook. I cook, of course, I eat, but I don't love to cook. I don't like Oh, this recipe, that recipe. I admit I'm the easiest cook and thank God John is the easiest eater. If I just say I'm cooking eggs tonight, he'll be like, sweet. Two ways to prepare beer that are so easy and so amazing. The number one way that I do is I smoke them and I don't even smoke them. I drop them off at my processors. Almost all plate processing places where you're going to drop off your deer or drop off your elk, they'll also smoke bears. So I've got, I take the back straps and those I'm marinating. I, and my marinade is literally whatever you have in the kit, in the fridge, you put in a bowl, you whisk it together, make sure you add Worcestershire sauce and Dijon mustard, but then barbecue sauce, soy sauce, French dressing, ranch dressing, you mix it all up, you marinate it 24 hours and you put them on the grill. Make sure that you cook them thoroughly because bears care can carry trichinosis. But that's my favorite backstrap recipe. But the four hams off a bear, you drop off, and usually they smoke in batches. So it might be three or four weeks before you get your bare quarters back. But then they're fully cooked. No worry about trichinosis. You simply put them in the oven at 200, so low, for three hours. It thaws them out, heats them up. Your whole house smells like a beautiful smoked ham. 
and you slice it and it's delicious. And then I usually eat it for two meals and then the rest slice up, put it in the fridge and take it in my car. I've literally been bear hunting on the mountain while I'm eating smoked bear. <laughs> it saves <laughs> forever. It's so good. And then I was also going to say, my friend Polly and Dee Serby taught me how to can bear meat. And it is so delicious. And they can a ton of their elk, deer, everything. And we actually did a show for Skullbound Chronicles. I think it's in season three of Skullbound Chronicles on Carbon TV. It's free for everybody. Go in and watch it. Take notes because we go step by step how to can meat. And you can do it with bear, elk, deer, whatever you want. It's the same exact process. It's not bear needs to be cooked longer or anything like that. And that's, and that is so much fun. They're the ones who taught me how to do that. And I've only done it with them because they have the whole kit and caboodle. But I can tell you one thing. I have done a taste test of always, I think it was this Colorado mule deer with bear and same vegetables in them. And you could not tell them apart because the canning process really breaks down the meat and it soaks in all that flavor of the spices and the vegetables that you put into the can. And it's delicious. And you just open it up, we'll put it in the microwave, put it over noodles or rice. And it's delicious. No, so that's amazing. I, we, friends, but I have that. <laughs> no, that's perfect. That's awesome. We do the same thing here as we can a lot of elk meat, right? And yeah. if you've got a real tough mule deer, we'll can that as well. And my wife's grandpa taught her to can, and that was just what they did. They did homemade yeah. salsa. They did everything, grape juice. But the big one was canning, canning more of meat that's not quite burger, but definitely not steak, right? Front shoulders on a mule deer is a great example. Cut it up in cubes. It breaks down the, yeah, it breaks down that meat. It's delicious. Whether you have, because parts of a bear are really sinewy, lots of sinew, which is, was also super useful back in the day. But it breaks that down super nice. You don't have to trim off everything. And same with, like you said, a tough mule deer or something. The canning process is really going to break that meat down. It's delicious and it stays forever. I don't know forever is the right word, but a long time. We make nachos or tacos or there's 10 ways to do it. You could just make a beef stroganoff, open one can of canned meat. You don't have to, it's already cooked. You just have to warm it up. I'll take a jar when I'm going scouting for anything. I just throw a jar in the truck and for lunch, I open it and just eat it cold because it's great. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. We've covered the gamut. There's a couple, there's one more question because this has happened to me as a bear hunter. I first started, I wanted to harvest just a bear, any bear, didn't care, big, small. I just wanted to get a bear, right? Once I got a bear, then I wanted to shoot lots of bears, right? But still just wanted to get to where I was confident, successful, repeatability. Now that I have several bears, archery, rifle, tree stand, baits, pot and stock, I've done it. On the list now is big or really cool color phase. And I'm 100% willing to let, I wouldn't say immature. I wouldn't say small. I would say a bear that Early David, early bear hunting David would be ecstatic to harvest. Now I look at that bear and go, no, nah, that's just not my bear. It's an awesome bear. It's cool. I want to see lots of bears. Has that happened to you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, all the time. Just this last year. I had color phase. I had a cinnamon, younger blonde. All We have lots of color phase bears in Idaho and in Montana. I've shot 17 bears, so I have every color under the sun. It's rare to get that big monster. And I've gotten a couple of those back there. my best Montana bear ever. He was amazing. That's on Skullbone Chronicles season one, just a recap short episode. If you want to go watch that, his noggin was huge. Absolutely. And what's funny, I 
it doesn't mean that I'm not going to shoot little bears down the road either, because everything is situational. And I'm not, and I don't care what, if someone's going to jump on and go, you shot that little bear. I don't care. If I, if it's coming down to the end of my hunt, I don't have any bear meat left. I can guarantee you that three-year-old might not be huge, but he's not young anymore. He's lived a life and I'm going to use every piece of that bear. And trust me, I use every, I use everything from the claws and jewelry and skull projects to the hides. I have bear jackets, vests, collars. I have bear pillows. I have bear rugs, mounts, you name it. I use everything. And I think it's up to the hunter. If the hunter is happy, I'm happy. And, and, but yeah, I'm getting a little more selective as I go through my years of being a bear hunter. But I also think as long as the hunter is happy, he's excited and he put the time in, good for him. Nothing bugs me more than when I'm on social media and I see people criticizing hunters for the size of their animal. It's just ridiculous to me. We, we need to join together. And, and there, there's another Fred Bear quote, and it, it's, uh, it's pretty simple. If you're not working to protect hunting, you're working to destroy it. You yeah, know, and exactly. When's the last? Together stronger. All of us, whether you're a trad guy or you're a long range rifle hunter, I don't care as long as you're ethical and legal and following the rules. I don't care if you're into hunting hogs with hounds. I don't care if you're a waterfall hunter. You are out there supporting wildlife and supporting hunting. And I think all of us need to band together so much stronger. Social media, it, it, it's a wonderful tool and a wonderful thing. It can get really negative. I try not to engage in anything like that. But if I could give the world a piece of advice, it would be like, come on, people, let's just be together. If you don't have anything nice, let's go back to the rule of kindergarten. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. I think social media, <laughs> and I, I I think this is a Mike Tyson quote, social media has made everybody way too comfortable for saying things that if you were in the same room, you'd get punched in the face for. I love when he said <laughs> that, I'm like, you know what? Y'all are getting way too comfortable saying things that if you were standing in the same room with this person, they might just punch you right in the face. You wouldn't say it because you'd be like, oh, I don't know how they'll take that. And that's yeah. going back to that two-hour conversation you're sitting on a plane with somebody. If we do our jobs right, and it is a job, are we going to convert everybody to becoming the next hardcore hunter, conservation globe-trotting hunter? No. But as long as they're not an anti, as long as they yeah. understand what we do. It's exactly right. It's what the conservationist Shane Mahoney said. He said, we don't need to convert the antis. We're not going to. And let's just, so back in the day, about a decade ago, we used to be able to say we hunters were 10% of the population. Antis are about 10%. So that leaves about 80%. We're non, who don't really have an opinion. Now, unfortunately, we're more like below 5%. I don't know what the antis are. But to make it simple, we'll use that analogy. And he was saying, it's, we're not going to convert the antis, that 10%, just like they're never going to convert us, that hunting is a bad thing. We need to simply educate that 80% to where they understand what hunting truly is, and they're not against it when they go to the polls, when they vote. That's what we need to do is to hopefully educate the 80%ers to at least be supportive of hunting. When the polls and the laws come up, they never put a law in that says we're going to ban duck hunting. We're going to ban turkey hunting. We're banning white-tailed deer hunting. They're very nefarious. They're going to reduce mountain lion hunting through 
loss of trapping, loss of hounds. They're going to reduce bear hunting by closing fall season and only having a spring season. And they're starting with those charismatic megafauna, like Stephen Ronella likes to say, the predators. And why does everybody get upset when you go to harvest a predator? I'm not sure. Same thing they do when they get elephants, lions, and giraffe, right? I put a picture of a turkey or a, a carp online, big ugly fish, not turkey, nobody cares. They're like, eh, whatever. You deer, it's, eh, that grandpa used to shoot those, that's food. All of a sudden you throw a picture of one of these charismatic megafauna up there and it's, oh my goodness, how come you, are you going to eat that? Or you just shot that? No, yeah, of course I'm going to eat it. And There's it's, just so much misinformation out there, but you show, you're so right. I just did a show a podcast last week of talking about predators on Talk is Sheep for the Wild Sheep Foundation in BC. And uh, we talked about predators because they're a huge part of the puzzle, puzzle when it comes to management of sheep. Of course, there's disease, there's habitat, but predators are a huge component of that. And so we talked all about that. And it's just that it's, you have to remember these people making these really ignorant comments just don't know. Oh, they, 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 they did know. a collared study on a grizzly bear in Yukon, B.C., nor- northern Canada. In the spring, that one collared grizzly bear in seven days ate something like 47 or 52 moose calves. I saw that. Or I saw that with the big collar on the bear. I saw that. That's fascinating. The, yeah. And that's a confirmed scientific study. That's not me pulling some random facts. I know I'm a little misrepresenting how many, but it was 40s. Moose calves yeah. in seven days, right? Yeah. And so yeah. by removing that one large bear from the population, we just did a Kodiak special. I was up there this spring hunting with my dad, and I will be up there next spring, get the tag in my pocket, archery hunting a, a Kodiak grizzly bear. Why? Because I want to try and do it, just because I, I need the adrenaline rush in my life. But there's an interesting dichotomy. As the North American wildlife hunting model got implemented on Kodiak, taking super predators out of the population because they were, the hunters were coming up, taking 10 foot plus Kodiak, 1,200, 1,300 pound bears out of the population. Infatricide dropped to almost really low numbers and the bear population exploded on the island because there's full, so full of fish that there, there's plenty of protein for those bears. They, they don't have to worry about calories right? And the bear density is something like a bear per square mile on the island, right? There's a lot of brown bears on that island. But what was keeping the population at a kind of a natural symbiotic, you know, level was the big boars were eating the cubs. That's what was, and now hunters are taking some of the bears. Those young cubs, instead of dying at three months old or three months old or six months old or three years old, they're now getting to mature into adulthood before they're harvested. So, in the grand scope of things, is it better that the average bear population age is six years or three years old? I, I think it's better that the bears all get to live for an average of six years than three years. And I think every non-hunter would agree. Oh, you mean they get to live 50% longer? It's going to be a little more humane to be taken by a human than it is to be taken by Mother Nature through starvation, old age, or infanticide. If you've watched a video of that, it's not pretty. No, John and I talk about that all the time. We'll read through comments and, you know, a lot of the, again, it goes back to being uneducated, anti yes, but then uneducated on the topic is, is people just, you know, like the, even just deer, right? Almost every state has them. They're outnumbered in a lot of states. People would rather see them get hit by cars and go stumbling off into the wild and, or die of EHD or a slow death, which is very painful, going to water, starvation, slow. 
Then having a hunter take them out ethically within seconds, they're dead and use their meat. Yep. They don't care about any art. They don't want to hear. They just don't want hunting, period. And we hunters are actually one of the most peaceful pieces of the puzzle in terms of how they die and management. And it's complex. It's never super simple. Every state, I was a Montana Wildlife Commissioner. John was a wildlife commissioner in Utah. And he was actually chairman of the board for six years. It's complex. There's a lot of really intricate issues that I think a lot of the public doesn't even understand. But I would go back to saying, if you support hunting in general, whether it's duck hunting, turkey hunting, whitetail hunting, you need to, you don't have to be a predator, but you need to support it because it's an important piece of the puzzle. Yeah, perfect said. So what's on the future horizon? Are we going to see some more skull art from you? What's anything big, exciting for the, the TV show adventures you have planned? Any bucket list hunt that you can tell us about that's coming up? Yeah, I'm actually so excited. I am actually, I have a Utah mountain goat tag and I'm so excited about that. And the funny thing is I've always, to each his own, everyone, if anyone, we could go do a whole nother podcast about tags and money, spending money on a hunt and who would spend $25,000 for a grizzly bear, blah, 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 whatever. I have a couple of bucket list hunts left on my list. Typically, I am the TJ Maxx of hunters. I am almost always a DIY hunter. If I go, if I have an outfitter reach out who wants some advertising, I typically give that to one of my veterans and we do that kind of hunt. And not to say I haven't hunted with outfitters because I have, but primarily in West, it's super easy to DIY. Montana, especially, you, you've got deer, whitetails, muleys, antelope, over-the-counter, mountain lion, bear. You can do it all. Typically, I call myself the TJ Maxx of hunters because I don't like to pay a lot for hunts. But this year was a big year for me. I sold my house in Montana. I did pretty well on it. And I said, if so, I'm budgeting the cost. So mountain goat and grizzlies are my two bucket list left hunts. I'm going grizzly next year. But mountain goat, you know, if I buy an Alaska or a BC mountain goat hunt, you know, you're looking at the cost of the hunt. You're looking at the flight, sometimes a drop camp. I have to fly Heath in. I've got to tip my guide, and that's how they make a living. Guide your tip's going to be three to five thousand dollars. You're looking at a pretty expensive hunt. I said to John, if I could get a goat tag for under X Y Z, it's going to be a lot cheaper than going to Alaska, BC, or something. And so I got one. I put it. I bid on one in an auction. I got it. It's in Utah. I'm so excited. I've never spent that kind of money before on any hunt I've ever done on ever. And, but Life short. I'm getting old. And so I'm super excited. And it's DIY. John and I are going to do it ourselves. We're going to do a bunch of scouting in August. The hunt starts in September. Heath's coming in to film it. So that's my one in the fall I'm looking to. I'm looking forward to the most. I am trying to line up a veteran hunt for a veteran that I don't even want to announce right now, but I will down the road. We'll talk about it again. He's an incredible special forces veteran. I'm really trying to get him on a hunt this year. If I can't this year, then he's slated for next year. I still have in my pocket my Montana bear tag and my Idaho bear tag, as well as Montana deer elk. I don't know if I also have, I don't know if I'm going to get back. Heath and I talked about running a bait in the fall. We've never done it in the fall, so it would be fun to see. But a big time commitment to go all the way up there and put our bait back in and all that. But yeah, I'll see. I go with the flow. See where I go. Nothing else is solidly on the books because it's DIY. So I'm hoping I draw antelope again in Montana. I got my deer and elk tag in Montana. I'm not going to archery hunt because my shoulder. So that's rightful. So really the goat's the biggie. And then next year, 
Prince of Wales Island is weird. You put in actually a year before and I already drew next spring Prince of Wales. So I'm going to go back to Eagle Lodge. In fact, today I just finished writing an article. I'm the Western contributor to Bear Hunting Magazine. And I just finished my Prince of Wales article that we did this last fall. So I'm excited to go there in the spring. So yeah, and then I'm going for Grizzly with Lance Kromberger next spring with John, next, I think, May or June with John. But yeah, that's what we've got on the docket this fall. We'll, we'll see how it goes. And I might hopefully put that 30-30 to use that I just got. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. I have been to Prince of Wales. I went back in the 90s during high school years, so I'm dating myself there a little bit. But when I went, you could just show up and buy tags and go out on the island. So now you have to draw on it's, I'm glad conservation is working. It's hard to see some of that change a little bit, but yes, I have been there and done that. And I challenge anybody that wants a pretty easy DIY kind of adventure, either, either Sitka Blacktail or Black Bear on, on Kodiak Island is definitely a, a DIY sort of hunt. You need to hire a transporter or book a lodge or somewhere in between, but that is definitely, if you're wanting to do an out of state kind of adventure style hunt. If you're from Wisconsin or Wyoming or Utah and you want to go somewhere that's a low budget, you don't have to go guided kind of deal. That's definitely yeah. a, a place to go, but take two rain jackets because you're going to need both of them. Oh. I mentioned that in the article. You definitely need good rain gear. It rained at least every day, but yeah, no, Prince of Eagle Lodge doesn't do any guiding. They just lodge. Yep. So it's awesome. Go back. You're going to have an amazing meal, a hot shower, a cute little cabin on the bay. And yet the hunt's up to you. And they also... When you book that kind of hunt, they have a vehicle for you, or you get to use one of their skiffs. In the fall, obviously, you're using a vehicle to go on the roads and go up the rivers and the creeks. In the spring, from what I hear, it's more of a skiff hunt. What a beautiful! And that's what I love about black bear hunting. It's so varied, depending on the time of year, the terrain, what weapon you're using. I did a hound hunt for the first time ever in Utah a couple of years ago. That's a Chronicles episode people can watch, and a lot of people are super critical of that. You see the negativity come out of the woodwork of that, but they have no idea. Houndsmen, I have a lot of respect for houndsmen. It's a lifestyle. It costs a lot to feed all your dogs all year round, train them. I went with PJ Pace, who is an incredible houndsman here in Utah. His dogs are amazing. They're, they, he's got bear dogs and cat dogs and, that, we could do a whole other podcast. About we could do a whole podcast. I, I concur that I am by far, I'm not a houndsman. I have just a pheasant dog that does a little bit of sheds, but to, I do have a dream and a goal to, to be the guy, not drive around the truck and go find and, and wait till the houndsman has treed the animal. No, I want to go be the houndsman, right? Help work the dogs, run yeah. the dogs, get behind the dogs and follow them. You, that's a lot of work. And I know a lot of guys that do it and kudos to them. So how do people yeah. follow along, get a hold of you? Where do they go? We've mentioned Carbon TV. We've mentioned Skullbound. What what yep. other social media outlets do they need to know about? Yeah, Skullbound TV. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Those are the only three that I'm on. I haven't dove into the TikTok or anything like that. But yeah, it's just me running them. So if you have any messages or questions, let me know. I'm happy to try to respond to all of them. If they want to watch the shows, again, there's Skullbound TV, my fast channel, which is funny. They're completely redoing Carbon TV's website. Carbon TV in general is like YouTube. It's free. It's free to watch, free for everybody, which is so nice. After the network for nine years, people miss your show. They miss it. It might be, it might rerun in three months, but other than that, it's gone. Whereas Carbon Skullbound Chronicles is my current shows that they're on there you pick and choose what you want to watch. You can go back, watch them again, send the link to people. That's Skullbound Chronicles. Now they're redoing the website. 
my fast channel scope on TV is right now under either the live category or cams, like your live cameras. It's going to be completely redone this next month and there'll be a fast channel section. Or they can just type in the search go One Chronicles and it should all be. Awesome. Jenna, I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate your time. Keep up the good work. Keep conservation. Keep inspiring the next generation because we are only one generation away from losing all this that we love. We really are. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the chat. It was so great meeting you. And I look forward to going back and listening to a bunch of your other podcasts. And I hope our paths cross again soon.